0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios
2: in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine can now be used to get in the U.S., but more people will now take a pass on it. New poll shows fewer than half of people view the vaccine as safe comes after the feds recommended a pause following cases of blood clots. We'll get into what it means going forward when it comes to getting shots into arms. Lots
1: of people now are skipping their second Pfizer or Moderna dose. But why?
2: Will we all really learn from this pandemic? Doctor breaks down what we can take away from all of this.
1: And is this pandemic worse than the 1918 Spanish flu? One number crunch
2: says yes. Summer Olympics less than 100 days away now. Japan issuing new lockdowns. So will we have the games?
1: We begin with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Dr. Nicole Sapphire is a medical analyst and contributor to Fox News. She's also a radiologist and director of breast imaging at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Doctor, is it hard for people to view the recent pause as a good thing?
0: Well, it sure is. And Charles and Mike, thanks for having me on. This is a really important topic. Um, Unfortunately, uh, all of the vaccines from the beginning of the clinical trials through manufacturing, through distribution, and now with the pause of J&J, it's really been held out in public court. A lot of this usually goes on and most people don't even know that it's going on, but everything right now is heavily scrutinized by the media. And so unfortunately, what that does is Um, As you mentioned, it can actually lead to further vaccine skepticism. What we should take this is the fact that they put a pause on it to investigate some of these rare adverse effects. That should tell us that they are not pushing the vaccine so hard that they're not willing to stop and pause to make sure that they're safe. So they did pause. They evaluated the data and they found about 16 blood clots out of the over 8 million in doses that were given, that is an exceedingly rare adverse effect. Um, when you look at other medications, just about every medication in the pharmacy, whether it's behind the pharmacy counter or in the over-the-counter aisles, they all have adverse effects, many of them much more common than that one.
1: You know what, what amazes me about, about this? Uh, you know, I, I keep thinking, and I'm amazed at places like Johnson & Johnson uh, that have a long history of consumer products, that they aren't getting that there's clearly a messaging problem here. People are tuning out the doctors, no offense, but they're tuning out the doctors. They're tuning out the politicians. This is a country that through commercials and ads, we we get people to buy, you know, $10 pair of jeans and pay $400 because we make them think it's a cool thing to do. Why can't we do it with vaccines?
0: Well, I mean, that's a really good question. And I actually I have a book coming out in a month called Panic Attack, because unfortunately, what's happened with COVID-19 is that everything has become politicized. Every aspect of science and public health has really been distorted. And so right now, the two entities that people trust the least are the government and big pharma. And so how can we get the messages across to people to trust both of these entities? And you know when unfortunately operation warp speed some people felt that it was done too hastily and because of that the waters have really been muddied and While we should be relishing in the fact that we have incredibly successful and safe vaccines, we have people scrutinize over it. And but I truly think the last thing they need is to have more Johnson and Johnson commercials right now, because I don't think that's going to make anybody trust them anymore. What we need are our public health officials like the CDC and the FDA coming forth and telling people how safe they are.
2: Do some of these need to just get into regular doctor's offices? I'm wondering, for the vaccine hesitant, who is it that convinces them in the end? Is it that all your neighbors on the street actually got one, and then you say, I will too? Is it your kid? Is it just your doctor? Maybe you've had him or her for for 10 or 15 years, so you trust that person, and they'll get you to get the shot? Who, Who makes the connection?
0: Well, you know, that's a really good question. And when it comes to childhood vaccines, obviously it's the pediatricians. When it comes to adult vaccines, it's really public messaging. When you think about your flu shot, most people go to a Walgreens or a CVS to get their flu shot. And that's what we're seeing with the COVID-19 vaccines. You're not going to your primary care doctor for the vaccine. You're going to your local football stadium or whoever's has the vaccines at that moment. So it's really a um, a public push. And so You know, you're almost going to start being shamed if you don't have a vaccine, because if everyone around you is vaccinated, then you will be the odd man out and you're going to be the person who could potentially bring it to the group. So remind everyone that you're not just getting vaccinated for yourself, you're getting it for your family, for your neighbors, for your community. So as friends, we should be encouraging others to get vaccinated.
2: Dr. Nicole Sapphire, medical analyst, contributor to Fox News, director of breast imaging, Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center. Doctor, thanks.
1: New numbers show about 5 million Americans have missed their scheduled second shots of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. They say you need both for full protection.
2: So why are so many people skiving out? Dr. Michelle Nusensweg, senior physician, molecular immunology at Rockefeller University. Doctor, UK opted to space out the doses even more, make sure people get the first one right away and then maybe it was better even if people waited between the doses. possible these people are maybe doing something right?
3: Um, no, that's unlikely. Um, I mean, it, um, it it's it's a probably a good thing to go by uh, the protocols that the vaccine makers recommend.
2: And that's for a couple of reasons, right? Number one, it was studied that way. And then number two, I guess if the first shot gets you to 80%, that's great. But we don't know how long the 80%. Lasts and and maybe it can be delayed a few weeks or something if, if you missed your appointment and you circle back around like some of the other countries but then it, it's not going to give you probably the full impact of I don't know the year potentially that the double shot can get you
3: well that I don't know about that but it's more about the uh, the interval you know that uh, where you're remaining susceptible um, to acquisition of the virus so um it, it's, uh, it's not clear that waiting a month or two months would um, be worse in terms of the ultimate outcome uh, after the second shot. But the interval of time in between the two shots is what uh, one, one would worry about.
1: Is uh, a concern that by delaying that second shot that there might be more of a potential for semi vaccinated people to develop variant uh, coronaviruses or, or not the case?
3: Um, well, it could be that, you know, if you have a suboptimal immune response that you would foster the selection of uh, mutant strains. Yes, that's possible.
2: What do you think it is? Do you think people some people report being a little wary or just downright afraid of side effects because they've heard, oh, the second dose, it's gonna knock you out for a day. But that's also just a roll of the dice. Nobody really knows what it's gonna be like. So you gotta go and get your second dose.
3: Yes, I certainly did. Uh and I would recommend that everyone does because <clears throat> no matter how bad, you know, um your pain in your arm is going to be or a little bit of fever or malaise um, you know, for a day uh, after the shot, it's not as bad as ending up in the hospital with coronavirus, that's for sure.
1: So we, we find ourselves, though, in a weird situation, don't we? Because we've got some people who are getting the uh, Pfizer and Moderna shots. They are not getting the second one. So, okay, you figure, well, maybe other people will be more happy to get the one-shot Johnson & Johnson now that it's back. But we just did in our other segment a story about how more and more people don't want to do that because their confidence has been shaken in it. So where does that leave us?
3: Well, you know, people that are hesitant um, are going to be hesitant. I think the important message to get out there is that um, irrespective of – the side effects of Pfizer or Moderna uh, or um, uh, Johnson & Johnson, that it's far, far better to get vaccinated than not to get vaccinated. Now, if you are a young woman uh, and... um, you know, you have a choice between Johnson & Johnson or the messenger RNA vaccines, then you might really want to choose the messenger RNA vaccines. Um, and in this country, we're very, very fortunate that we, in fact, uh, many people have that choice. Uh, so I think for others, for older people uh, and for men in a more general way, um, it's no problem. Uh, there's no no evidence that there's a problem with the Johnson vaccine.
2: Dr. Michelle Nusensweg, a senior physician, molecular immunology, Rockefeller University. Doctor, thanks. We'll
1: learn from our mistakes during this pandemic, or we will just all forget and do the same thing the next time this happens.
2: Dr. Stephanie Zaza, president of the American College of Preventative Medicine with KYW's Matt Leon about how to prevent our short memories from working against us.
4: Overall, I- you know, I think we've done a good job. But that said, we've learned a lot of lessons along the way that we've had to to make adjustments to and and some things we just missed. And so thankfully, we're in a place now where we have the really the decisive prevention tool in the vaccine that can really move us forward, if we can get people to take it. So I think that's going to be our next big hurdle is getting really high rates of vaccination. And we have we have to focus on that right now.
2: You mentioned lessons. What are some of the biggest lessons you think we've learned during this pandemic?
4: Many, many. Um, I think the starting off one big lesson is international cooperation in identifying and trying to respond quickly and effectively when a new agent, a new virus, a new bacteria is discovered. We really stumbled there. I think we in the United States need to look really hard at our regulatory processes for tests and therapeutics, therapeutic medications, so drugs that treat disease, and also prevention medications like vaccines, so that we have a, a really robust process. I think a lot of that did get worked out, but it took a while. The biggest, most important lesson we've learned as a nation, as a public is that people who are already vulnerable because of poor health, because of poor housing, because of other conditions of their environment, never do better when there's a crisis. We all have to, and this is something we can all work on. So at the individual level, families, communities, and at sort of every level of government, we need to work on changing our underlying good health. We need to be healthier And we need to reduce these disparities. Some populations are just so at risk. And we saw that play out in a very unfortunate way.
2: When we're looking ahead, people were telling us, I can't tell you how many documentaries I watched over the last 15 years, that the next pandemic's coming, it's coming. And you'd watch it and you'd get freaked out for the final 15 minutes of the show, but then you'd forget about it. Knowing that we've all kind of lived through this now, what are the biggest things we can do to help mitigate whenever the next pandemic comes down the the pike?
4: That's such a a great observation. You know, we have short memories when it comes to some of the stuff we're seeing that right now. We're seeing people like, oh, you know, it doesn't seem so bad. I'm not going to worry about the vaccine, right? People are already starting to move into that place of like, we can get through this. So we do have to, without frightening people, we have to find ways to keep the pressure on government at each level, so city governments, state governments, federal governments, to do that kind of planning, to take the lessons and translate those into different ways of, of acting in the future. And that's that can be very hard to do. Funding is required for that. So keeping sustainable funding, the, the dangerous thing that sometimes happens is sort of surge funding, and then it backs way off, and the other things become priorities. So Keeping this as a priority is going to be really important, and, and I think perhaps one way to help people keep it as a priority is to help people see these connections between all of these difficult things that happened, the connection between our health, our ability to respond, and from a health perspective tied very tightly to an economic and social perspective And if we can, and tying it also to some of these social justice movements that have arisen throughout this, so that these, helping people see how these things are always interconnected like this is a really, is one way maybe we can help keep this as a priority. And that's something we as preventive medicine and and public health physicians try to do all the time, but we often operate in the background. So another way is to sort of keep public health out in front of some of these conversations because this is this is what we talk about all the time, um, and that could help keep it as a priority as well.
1: Coming up after this short break, is this pandemic really worse than the 1918 Spanish flu by one metric? The answer is yes. A report in the New York Times finds the U.S. suffered the biggest single-year surge in its death rate since the federal government began publishing statistics and that significantly surpasses the rise in the death rate during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic.
2: Things were different 100 years ago. Death rates much higher, lots of progress over the century. With us is Dr. Harlan Krumholtz, director of the Yale New Haven Hospital Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. So, doctor, if we reverse these trends for years and years, that's a pretty big turnaround.
5: Yeah, it's been an unfortunate year. There's no question about it. And and these kind of numbers and, and analyses, I think, put in... In bright relief, just just how devastating this last year has been.
1: And the the um, when we talk about the excess deaths, is it all necessarily because of COVID, or are we also talking about people dying from other things because the pandemic prevented them from seeking medical care or getting normal, you know, checkups, that sort of thing?
5: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and and it's a chance to highlight the importance of people. Who have held back from getting routine visits or even emergency care because of fear about the pandemic, and and that became a, a, a secondary uh, sort of uh, cause of harm from the pandemic. And but but these excess deaths are really largely about the the direct deaths from from COVID itself. The the numbers are kind of mixed so far on a lot of these other causes. <clears throat> we have concerns that long term. They're going to continue to rise unless we get ahead of again a lot of these uh, issues around, especially preventive visits, and and you know want to encourage people who missed visits uh, that were about checkups or or uh, you know any other parts of their health that, that people sort of get catch up with that. But but really, this is about the pandemic, and I, I think the real tragedy here is is that you know largely this could have been uh, mitigated to a great extent. You know, it's it should give us cause as a nation to reflect on what we did, how we performed, and and what we need to do thinking forward, because we were so intent on letting each state and each locality to sort of do their own thing, where we're certainly one to, you know, enable that kind of freedom of action in a lot of ways in our lives, but because we lacked a national coherent policy, uh, you know, there were a lot of lives that were lost as a result, and and not all countries looked like we did, and not all countries suffered the kind of harm that we did. But this was really of historic proportions.
2: How much faith do you have that that kind of shakes out the way you want it to? Because we've talked about, you know, public health infrastructure being underfunded. We've talked plenty about how this became very, very political. And that split a lot of people. So is it going to be once we get through this easy to forget some of that until the next time it happens? And then we're right back in the same place because because we didn't fix it this time.
5: Yeah, I guess I'm. I still am hopeful that maybe we can put together some sort of bipartisan commissions that that rise above the politics of the moment. Don't seek to assign blame, but seek to understand where we can do to what we can do to position ourselves for for the future. Because certainly there are lots of lessons here, and and I think one of the lessons is that we have to remove the politics and. And so we have to figure out what the right balance is between letting people do what they want to do and what's in the public health interests. And then, then we also have to realize the kind of things that, that maybe we need to do as a nation to help protect people. I wonder what would have happened with this pandemic if it would have disproportionately affect wealthy people, if it would have uh, had a specific impact on people of means and power. Because, again, we had a situation where the most devastation occurred in those who have the least voice, who have the least ability to influence the process. And so essential workers who couldn't really afford to stay home or people who were trying to get testing and and it just wasn't available, or if it was available, it was 150 bucks, 250 bucks at these sort of pop-up testing places. And then of course, when vaccines came out, uh, you know, not all places were as well organized as others. Uh, It was a great triumph to get vaccines out that fast. And I think we ought to acknowledge that that was a real accomplishment and largely this nation helped push forward the vaccine development and its application. But but there are plenty of lessons here about what we can do better. And I think you're exactly right that the way to get there is to be able to get away from blame, push this above the politics and try to get some crisp recommendations about how we're going to protect ourselves. It is in our national interest to have these plans in place and be ready to move and to have people prepared should we face it again.
2: Dr. Harlan Krumholz directs the Yale New Haven Hospital Center for Outcomes, Research, and Evaluation.
1: The Summer Olympics in Tokyo is supposed to be from last year. Athletes all over the world getting ready to showcase their skills at the Games now just 88 days away.
2: But new lockdowns ordered as cases are rising. So what happens now? Michael Payne, CEO of Payne Sports Media Strategies, former marketing and broadcast director of the International Olympic Committee. So, Michael, three months, not a lot of time when we're talking the Olympics. Do they have a problem here or no?
6: I don't think they do. The uh, Japanese government, the IOC, have put in place uh, incredibly strict measures to control and ensure they can deliver a safe games. Uh, They've banned international spectators. Uh, There will be very tight testing on the ground and all of the athletes and everybody will be operating in a bubble. Um, I think the move to declare a state of emergency actually is to ensure that the outbreak doesn't take off during the golden week, which is Japan's big holiday week. Uh, If you actually look at the numbers in Japan, they're some of the lowest in the world in terms of the outbreak. And they just wanted to make sure they can keep it that way uh, so that the games can be safely staged.
1: Okay, so answer the question for those who might be incredulous. Why does, in this case, the show must go on?
6: Uh, I think the choice is either the show goes on or you cancel it. And the biggest losers there will be the athletes. There are an awful lot of events uh, I mean, in, in America throughout taking place now, uh, albeit with restricted measures. And you know, why would you want to deprive the athletes for their one time on the world stage when other events in Europe, the European football will take place in a few weeks time.
2: In terms of how to pull this off, you mentioned the testing, the infrastructure, how tight it's gonna to have to be, because it's not just the athletes. I mean, you know how many support people have to go and what it takes to really to put the games on for, for those couple of weeks.
6: Well, the support people have been cut right back, so that it is really only mission critical. Um, you know, the international federations will no longer be bringing their boards unless the individual person has an operational critical mission. Uh, the IOC and the, many of the sponsors have uh, cancelled all of their guest programs, so that the focus is really now 100% on the athletes, ensuring that they can compete in a uh, safe environment uh, and your colleagues in the media so that they can report it.
1: I, I'm wondering, and I haven't seen any figures on this, perhaps you have, what the Japanese public thinks about the decision to go on. Are they all behind it because of national pride or they think it's foolish? Do you know? Uh,
6: there's a contradiction here. I mean, the Japanese people are. Are some of the most supportive and passionate for the Olympics. They have some of the highest TV ratings. Uh, but equally, they're nervous at the moment. And the public opinion uh, is concerned that uh, with all the foreigners coming to the country, uh, I think that was one of the key reasons why they sadly canceled uh, international spectators. And that extends to all the families of the athletes. Um, but I think increasingly as they see the the very strict measures that uh, the government and the IOC are taking, um, confidence is building. They're they're, they're turning out to watch the torch relay. Uh, The memories of the last Olympic Games in Japan, 1964, was transformative for the country. Uh, So, you know, yes, people are nervous as they are around the world about the ongoing uh, healthcare, but Again, as I said before, you look at the numbers, Japan has some of the lowest uh, infection rates uh, of any country. Um, Do they get to go watch? they're very low on the infection. They're they're very low on the um, vaccine as well.
2: And do they get to go watch just with crowd limits?
6: Uh, That's not been decided. Uh, I think the Japanese government is trying to delay that decision as long as possible. Uh, Clearly, it would be very, very sad if there were no spectators in the stadium. Uh, And I think most sports organizers around the world are finding ways to ensure that spectators can come into the venue. Uh, It may not be at 100 percent capacity, uh, but I think that decision is not going to get taken for at least another month.
2: Michael Payne, CEO, Payne Sports Media Strategies. Michael, thanks.
1: President Biden is set to announce as early as tomorrow new outdoor mask-wearing guidance from the CDC. NBC News reporting the guidance will likely be for fully vaccinated people versus those who are not Dr. Anthony Fauci says outdoor risk is really quite low. A paper from UC San Francisco researchers found that less than 10% of transmission occurs outdoors, and the odds of spreading the virus indoors were 19
2: times higher. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.